Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. All right, it's episode 28 for the love of the game. Let's get it cracking. Welcome back. Episode 28 of For the Love of the Game podcast. And the New York Knicks are giving me thoughts. And I'm catching feelings. Kevin Knox and Mitchell Robinson showed major flashes in the Summer League. Kevin Knox, who was drafted ninth, who some Knicks fans booed on draft night, showed the ability to put the ball on the deck. He showed a nice shooting stroke, showed some playmaking ability, showed some good defensive instincts and rotations. And he made first team all summer league. He looks like he's going to be a major player in this league. A combo forward that can shoot and defend multiple positions. Basically what every team wants in today's NBA. And Mitchell Robinson, the center they got in the second round. My God, what an athlete he is. He blocks everything. He can switch out on the perimeter and guard guys in the pick and roll. He may be the best athlete for a center in the league right now. He's like Clint Capella 2.0 and might be the steal of the draft. Here's how I currently feel about the Knicks rookie summed up in this brief clip. I love him and love him. I don't care who knows it. Now, I've said it before and I will say it again. The New York Knicks have a path to be a top three team in the East in two years. Young players with promise, a healthy Kristaps Porzingis, the largest media market, and yes, that still matters in today's NBA, and a ton of cap space with two max slots available and potentially even more. The lure of avoiding the brutal Western Conference. I'm just saying it's very, very possible. And the Knicks have the potential to be so back Of course, after the summer of 19, that's whatever. And now I need to give myself a cold shower because I've gotten a little too excited. Uh, For what is typically a slow time in sports, a lot has been happening since the last episode. For one, France won the World Cup, beating Croatia 4-2. Now, I didn't really watch a whole lot of the World Cup, but from what I heard and followed on Twitter, it was pretty exciting. And it got a really good rating in the United States. More on this a little later in the show with a very special guest of mine who, quite honestly, is a little bit too qualified to be on this show, but that's how you make things grow. Major League Baseball's all-star break happened. 
first the home run derby this past Monday night, which was awesome as Bryce Harper wowed the hometown fans in dramatic fashion to win it. And for all those who are complaining on Twitter that Bryce and his dad, who was pitching to him, didn't wait quite long enough for the balls to land it before swinging again, just shut up. Like, it was a great display. It was riveting theater. And it's something Major League Baseball desperately needs these days as their ratings have been brutal. As for the actual All-Star game itself, lots of home runs, extra innings, and the American League beat the National League 8-6 with Houston Astros third baseman Alex Bregman taking home the MVP. Major League Baseball is in a good spot in one place, the fact that there's tons of young talent in the league. If you looked up and down the rosters of the All-Star game, they're all in the, most of them, I should say, early, mid-20s. That's good for baseball. Uh, Baseball needs a shot of life, and hopefully it can do better at marketing its young players. In other baseball news, Manny Machado, the All-Star third baseman slash shortstop for the Orioles, was finally traded to the Dodgers for five top-level prospects. Uh, This has been a story that has been dominating the season so far uh, and finally came to uh, a conclusion. I will be talking more baseball closer to the trade deadline with some recurring guests. Looking forward to doing that uh, soon. Now, no sport had a better showing recently than tennis during this past Wimbledon because from the quarters on in the men's draw to the final, that might have been some of the best tennis we've had in Wimbledon ever. And congrats to Novak Djokovic for winning his fourth Wimbledon title and getting all the way back to the top after battling injuries. He beat Kevin Anderson 6-2, 6-2, 7-6 in the final. But that match doesn't even tell the full story about how great the tournament was. And since tennis normally gets a raw deal on podcasts and gets no love, well, allow me to show some love and shed some light right now. The quarterfinals for the men's draw included an epic five-setter between Juan Martin Del Potro, the five-seed, and Rafa Nadal, the two-seed. An absolutely awesome match with Nadal taking it in five sets. And while that was happening, Roger Federer went up two sets to love on Kevin Anderson. Then Kevin Anderson won the next two sets, and in the fifth set, serving second in the set, he wins the set 11-9 handing Federer his second loss ever at Wimbledon when up two sets to love. An absolutely amazing feat by Kevin Anderson. Then the semis, we had U.S.-born John Isner facing Anderson in a marathon of a match, an absolute marathon. It goes five sets with Anderson winning the fifth set again while serving second, and that's important to note, 26-24 in the fifth set. Just crazy. Absolutely insane. And then Nadal Djokovic had to be played out over two days because of time constraints and rules with center court of Wimbledon also goes five with Novak winning it in five. A ridiculous three days worth of tennis. Ridiculous. And it all culminated with Novak winning the title. Um, Novak deserves some love, but a quick note on Kevin Anderson because his run really needs to be mentioned in terms of how remarkable it really was. Since there is no tiebreaker for deciding the fifth set of Wimbledon, the player serving first is at a major advantage, especially if we get into bonus time at the end of the set. The pressure to hold serve when serving to stay alive in a match is tremendous. And Kevin Anderson held to stay alive 35 times in two matches, 35 times, 10 times against the greatest player ever, 
That is one of the most impressive things I've ever seen in all of sports. He played about 12 hours of tennis in two matches. And yeah, he lost in the final to Novak. But the run by Kevin Anderson, what an incredible run. And for the record, before the tournament started, I told my brother to bet Novak to win it at 11-2, to which was a missed opportunity. Anyway, what an incredible week for tennis. What an incredible Wimbledon. Last thing before we get into tonight's interviews, uh, major news out of the NBA. So the shoe finally dropped. The Spurs finally traded Kawhi Leonard to the Toronto Raptors for DeMar DeRozan, Jakob Pertl, and a protected first-round pick. Uh, Danny Green is also going to the Raptors in that trade. This was the last remaining major storyline of the offseason, or at least what we think is going to be the last remaining big storyline for a while. My first reaction to this trade was that Toronto, even though they're taking a big risk given Kawhi's contract situation, he's going to be a free agent. It was a risk they absolutely had to take given where they've sort of topped out. Um, We'll get to Toronto in a second. But for the Spurs, who were at odds with Kawhi for about a year, uh, given his injury, his medicals, his teammates were questioning him. While the relationship, given the fact that he's, again, going to be a free agent at the end of the year, and is in the final year of his deal. The Spurs needed to move on. They absolutely had to needed to move on. They couldn't let this fester long enough. And they weren't trading Kawhi to another Western Conference team. Popovich made that abundantly clear. Otherwise, the Lakers would have been in serious discussions. And they didn't want to go full rebuild mode, implying that a package of young players and picks was going to get it done. You can debate if that was smart or not. Whether the Spurs should look towards the future or not, that's a different discussion. But for what Greg Popovich had wanted, uh, given the fact that he's only going to be coaching the Spurs what looks like for another couple of years, and he doesn't want to do the whole rebuild, they got a pretty good haul. And Popovich has earned the right to have that cachet and get what he wants in terms of where the organization was going to go with that trade. So they get back an all-star guard a four-time All-Star who made second-team All-NBA last year who's not even 29 yet. And this guy's biggest knock against him is he always gets his ass kicked by LeBron in the playoffs. Well, a lot of guys always get their ass kicked by LeBron in the playoffs. DeMar DeRozan, even with all of his flaws, is still a top 17 to 20 NBA player with team control of his contract for three more years. Not bad. Plus, they got a young big in Jakob Pertl and a late first-round pick. DeMar should be good in San Antonio. And the Spurs, with this team, are built will be around the five seed in the West. If you think the Spurs are going away, well, you're just wrong. Remember, they won 47 games last year and got absolutely nothing out of Kawhi. DeRozan will play well with the Spurs, considering what kind of system they run, and is an upgrade over a zero from Kawhi. Now, as for the Raptors, I know Kawhi's people have hinted that he wants to go to L.A. at all costs. But if you're the Raptors, this is a gamble you absolutely need to take. Look at Paul George with Oklahoma City. He was a lock to be going to the Lakers. And then all of a sudden, he wasn't a Laker. Toronto kept so many of its assets in this trade as well. Worst case scenario, Kawhi leaves after the year and the rebuild starts a little earlier. It's one year left lower on Lowry's contract with Ibaka and you can be able to trade them. It's easier to deal them then. But if it works out and you add Kawhi to this team that was the number one seed in the East and Kawhi is back to being a top five player, the Raptors can go to the finals. And maybe he stays. 
Kawhi personally hasn't said anything. So given that the DeMar DeRozan Raptors maxed out in terms of how high they were going to go, this is an incredibly good risk for the Raptors. They also could trade Kawhi midseason if they get a sense that he's not going to stay. Toronto is actually in a pretty good spot here. And for all the idiots who are suggesting that Kawhi won't show up to play for the Raptors, well, he basically sat out all of last season, so he's not going to go into free agency sitting out two straight seasons. He's not risking getting fined and losing $20 million this season. And he's, again, looking for a max contract in the offseason. He still needs to prove that he's the same guy who's the MVP runner-up or top three MVP candidate that he was two years ago. So all the nonsense that he's not going to show up for Toronto, that's just bogus. And lastly, uh, news came in today that uh, Carmelo Anthony was traded to the Hawks um, for Dennis Schroeder, uh, Mike Muscala, and a future first-round pick in 2022. Just, uh, it's sad what has become of Carmelo Anthony. He was terrible last year. I've been a Carmelo fan and defender for a while. Um, it, it just looks like it's over for him. He's going to be bought out and probably end up on the Rockets. It's just... You know, he really fell off a cliff, and that's sort of the end of that. So that puts a bow on the NBA offseason for now. And now we're getting into my first guest, a very, very special guest who I mentioned is going to be by far my most famous guest. Hopefully this will help the podcast really pop off uh, and take it to the next level. And we're about to get into that in the next couple of minutes. All right, on the line to talk a little bit of World Cup, um, by far my most prominent and famous guest. It's really an honor to have him on the line uh, to talk about a subject that I really don't know a whole lot about, and I am really excited to get his insight and learn a lot from him. New York soccer legend, Mr. Shep Messing. Shep, how are we doing tonight? Well, first of all, Aaron, it's, it's, it's a thrill for me to be here, and I'll tell you why. I, for this World Cup, and I'm always busy broadcasting, traveling, and for whatever reason, I went radio silent during this World Cup. And ESPN called many times to have me on uh, Sirius Radio, Fox, uh, several other national radio networks, and I went under the radar screen. I turned them all down. So you are, for the love of the game, Aaron, for you, this is the only radio broadcast, podcast, only way that I've been heard during the World Cup. So good for you to get me. I have a smile so wide that you, you can't even, uh, you can't see, but I'm sure you can hear it through the microphone. It's really an honor um, to even be mentioned in the same breath as those uh, people, but was just really excited to have you on. And, you know, I, I know we've gone back and forth a little bit about, you know, the podcast and what, what I've been doing. And I'm sorry for for bugging you as much as I have, but, you know, I'm just really excited to, you know, pick your brain a little bit about soccer and and sort of educate my uh, my listeners who I'm sure many of them are not the biggest soccer fans. So it's really an honor. So just, you well, know, when they get when they get done listening to me, they're going to be soccer fans because all that pent up enthusiasm that I have for this World Cup. I'm going to talk about it uh, with you. And Aaron, it was a it was a great World Cup as far as World Cups go. And when I say great, I'll give you a couple of little tidbits that you and your audience may not know. 
there were upsets. This is the first time in, in the history of the World Cup that neither Germany, Brazil, or Argentina made it to the semifinals. The first time ever. So wow. there's never been a World Cup when one of those three nations didn't make it at least to the semifinals. So right away, you had the feeling that there were going to be upsets. Another factor, Aaron, is always in the World Cup, you look at where the World Cup is being held. Generally, if it's in Europe, it's going to be a European team that wins. In South America, generally, it's going to be a South American team that wins. It's the home field advantage, for lack of a better word. When you have the World Cup at a place like Japan, Korea in 2002, that's different. You know, that's sort of a neutral site. And many of the soccer experts didn't know what to predict for Russia, right? Who, who is that going to favor? Surely it's not going to favor a South American team, uh, a team that plays in a hot climate year round. You have to think it would favor a European team. And, and in fact, for one of the first times ever, we had a European final with Croatia and France. So what I liked about the World Cup was drama. Everybody wants drama. There were late goals, some stoppage times. There were upsets. There was a little bit of everything. And then you had a classic David and, and Goliath. Goliath being France and Croatia with three and a half, four million population. Uh, they were David. So it was an exciting World Cup. The fact that Croatia made the final, and as you mentioned, you know, Germany, I believe, was was the number one overall seed going in. I mean, they were the defending champions, and they didn't go nearly yep. as far as, as people thought. I mean, they almost got eliminated in the preliminaries, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, it took, it took a last-second free-kick goal to keep them alive in, in stoppage time. So Germany uh, barely escaped the group play, and, and uh, look, they were one of my favorites. It just goes to you that... You know, all the analysts in the world could look at the teams, look at the roster, look at the matchups, and we still get it wrong. So I, I had Germany uh, going certainly to the final, and they barely squeaked out a group play. Pretty, pretty wild stuff. I mean, the Croatia thing is is really crazy given how big of a country it is. But congrats to France. But in terms of the individual performances, who to you sort of like really stood out and, and made their mark in terms of like individual brilliance? Well, look, that's, that's something these players wait for every four years because it's really like no other professional sport in the world. Players who are making a lot of money or players who young players, the World Cup is a huge stage for them to get transferred, to get sold. Uh, to make a tremendous amount of money. Now, I'll answer your question second. First, I'm going to tell you who who really disappointed. And then I'll talk about the emerging stars, the guys that done, that did well. But look, for me, if you look at the three biggest names, perhaps in, in world soccer today, Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, and Neymar, look, they were a disaster. Cristiano Ronaldo, not so much. I mean, it's too much for him to take Portugal on his shoulders and, and do any better than they did. They're just not that good. They're a little bit old and a little bit slow, but Ronaldo scored his goals. 
just couldn't couldn't lift his team. Messi is the interesting one because look, I, I was fortunate that I played with who I consider the greatest player ever to play the sport, Pelé. And Pelé was my teammate. And when people always ask me, well, compare Pelé to Maradona or 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 to Messi or to Cristiano Ronaldo, I, I, for me, there's no comparison because Pelé did it at the club level and at the World Cup, and he did it consistently for 15 years, scoring just about a goal every game. The big failure of Messi, no matter how he's done uh, with Barcelona over the years, and he's a phenomenal player. There's no doubt about it. And and he fails with Argentina. He he is a complete disaster with Argentina. Now, not like Ronaldo, when I could say Portugal doesn't have enough talent around him, Messi has enough talent around him, but he looked like a shadow of himself. In, in several games, he looked disinterested. He looked slow. He looked lethargic. He, he was not the same player. So uh, another disaster in the World Cup for, for Messi. And the last one, before I get on to the, to the players that did well, is Neymar. I, I love Neymar. I, I've, I've been down in Santos where Neymar came from. That's the home of Pelé. I saw Neymar uh, with Pelé. I was down in training at Santos when Neymar was 14 years old. So I've seen him for a long time, and he's a fantastic player. What happened to him in this World Cup? He's the laughing stock of the world when it comes to social media because there's a phenomenon called the Neymar Challenge, where if you tap somebody on the shoulder, they fall down and start squirming and rolling on the ground like, like they've been shot. So. Neymar is a wonderful talent. I also thought Brazil would do better, but you know the theatrics, the diving, the whining, the crying, the rolling to try and get a yellow card. Uh, you know it's nonsense. So he came out looking pretty bad. Yeah. Now I'll get to your question, Aaron. Oh, be- Look, before before you do that, uh, Neymar was. Uh, I mean, the the flopping. And again, I'm not a soccer aficionado. Um, I, I'm a huge basketball fan, so I, I know what flopping yep. looks like. Neymar like took flopping to the next level. <laughs> he did. And, and look, I'm a basketball junkie too. And, and the equivalent, and you really can't say the equivalent in, in basketball is, you know, somebody's driving in a hoop and you step up and try and take the charge and, and, you know, you go flying back, but you hit it on the head, Aaron. He took it to a new level and it's, uh, it's a disgrace. You know, I'd love to see that part of the game eliminated. The problem is it's so hard to measure somebody's pain threshold, right? You don't know if he's really hurt or, or not, but he, he comes out a little bit of a laughing stock, a very rich laughing stock, but nonetheless, he didn't do himself any favors. Um, the big player, look, the, the real young star out of this whole World Cup, of course, belongs to France. And that's Mbappe, the the 19-year-old phenom. And and look, he's a phenom and he's 19 years old, but he's also been discovered. He's playing for PSG. Imagine a team with Paris Saint-Germain with Neymar, Cavani, Mbappe. But Mbappe, again, back to my teammate Pelé, he's the first player in the history of the World Cup to score a goal in the final as a teenager the last one to do it uh, was Pelé in, in his first World Cup when he was 16. So 
Mbappe, you know, big shoes to 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 fill. And and what I liked about him, look, he's young, he's fast, he's got speed, he plays out wide, he's clever, he's got a high soccer IQ, and he can score goals. But what I loved about him is he played with a real joy. I mean, this kid was not phased by the World Cup, and and as the World Cup and as France got out of group stage and got into the knockout, Mbappe got better. I mean, he was playing with a real, a real swagger and a real joy, and 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 he certainly had a great World Cup. And 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 the other guy that stands out for me is on the opposition in in the World Cup final on Croatia is their their leader in the midfield, Luka Modric. And and Modric, if ever there was a player that really took his team, and they were they were a really good team. But Luka Modric took that team to a whole nother level. And it's since you're a basketball guy, it's it's really that point guard who can dictate the pace of the game, who could score, who can dish it, get an assist. And that's what Luka Modric was. He was really that central attacking playmaker. He dictated the tempo, the flow of the game. He'd spray the ball around. He'd score a big goal when he had to. And, uh, you know, he was it was wonderful to see him play. So you, you would say he's, he would be like a Chris Paul type, somebody who, uh, you know, in his prime, everything would flow through control tempo, be able to score it when he needed to get people involved when he needed to somebody like that. That's a great description, Aaron. See, you're getting up the learning curve in soccer because really <laughs> every team, every team has one player they want to play through. And when we say play through, it's the same in basketball, right? So, so Luka Modric, as a central playmaker, when the defenders win the ball, they're going to look up and they want to get it to Luka Modric because he will then look up, have the peripheral vision, the soccer IQ to know whether he, he wants to play it out wide to the left, whether he wants to play a diagonal ball, whether he wants to slow it down and slow the tempo of the game. He's really the guy orchestrating how his team plays and, and nobody did it better at this World Cup than, than Modric. The most amazing thing that you said in you know, this whole bit, besides for the fact that Mbappe is 19, is the fact that Pele scored a World Cup goal at 16 years old. I mean, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> Listen, we're going to get to incredible Pele stories, but uh, you know, for those of your listeners who don't know, I, I was you know, in baseball terminology, I was the luckiest guy in the world because I'm a guy that grew up here in New York with uh, American football, basketball, baseball. I never saw a soccer ball till I was 16. And if you take a, if you take a shortstop in baseball or a point guard in, in basketball, that that's really what you want in a goalkeeper. Hmm. Plus a little bit of wild crazy, but (laughs) you know, the the good hand-eye coordination and aggression and, and I went from playing in a in in high school at Wheatley in Old Westbury. I went from Wheatley to an All American college to play in the Olympic Games, all in five years. And then two years later, I'm playing on on at the time it was the most famous team in the world with Pele and Franz Beckenbauer and Carlos Alberto and Giorgio Canali in front of seventy seven thousand people at at Giant Stadium. So my my rise in the sport of soccer was uh, inexplicable. And and really it's like, you know, waking up one day and, and you're you're a quarterback 
in the NFL playing in the Super Bowl. It just happened overnight for me. And, 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 you know, my, my kids, my son teases me all the time and said, dad, you know, I've looked at all the record books and, and if you, if you look at the world of soccer, who they consider to be, let's say the top 10 players in the history of the sport, you've played with or against eight of those 10. So yeah, I don't know what we started the question with, but yeah, Pele scoring that goal in, in Sweden when he was uh, 16 years old in a world cup. And again, I, I never compare Maradona or Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo because Pele, you know, three world cup titles has scored a goal a game for over 15 years. And, and, and look, there's a reason I, I was up close and personal with them and, and they tested him physiologically in Brazil one year and they found out he was really for lack of a better word superhuman he had a he had a vertical leap that equivalent to a Michael Jordan or, or close to 50 inches wow he had peripheral vision you hold two fingers behind his head he could he could tell you how many fingers so he had about 340 degree peripheral vision so he was a freak he was a freak of nature physically and mentally, like all the great athletes, like a Jordan or, or a Gretzky in, in hockey, uh, or if you're from New York, a Mark Messier, it's just that killer instinct, that 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 intangible that that makes the greatest in their sport, you know, one of a kind. And that was Pele. He he had everything in the world physically. He had the soccer IQ, and he had the absolutely the greatest, most humble guy in public and on the field, a killer. So I, I, I think everybody, they're, they're players close to Pelé, but only one Pelé. You mentioned something about your rise to, um, you know, to prominence in the sport uh, and playing at the highest level. And it really happened in a, in a matter of five years. And I've heard this question asked on other podcasts and, and Bill Simmons has discussed this a couple of times. Like, for the, and we'll get to the you know the state of U.S. soccer in a little bit, but yep. do you believe that if we took our greatest athletes, say for example a guy like you know like Russell Westbrook or LeBron James or you know and and someone Simmons has referenced a lot, uh, Allen Iverson in his prime, you know Allen Iverson in high school was was the best athlete you know, arguably in the world in terms of being a football player, a basketball player, like he was able to dribble a football like he would dribble a basketball through his legs. I mean, the stuff he was able to do is just insane in terms of yep. coordination. Yep. If you took them yep. and you gave them three to four years to learn the sport of soccer, do you think they would be the best that we have to offer? It's a great, great question. And I can make the argument both ways. So I'm, I'm going to split it down the middle. Uh, because I really think there's validity to both sides. One answer is absolutely not. Soccer, you know, as long as your feet reach the ground, you're big enough to play soccer. The greatest players in the world, the Pele's, the Neymar, Cristiano Ronaldo, a little bit bigger, Messi. You know, these guys are 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, so size, really not an issue. Some of the greatest players in the world, really not that athletic just an unbelievable technical skill with the ball. Valderrama, long red, orange hair, played captain of Colombia. This guy was the worst athlete I ever saw. 
but you couldn't take the ball away from him. So there is one argument that says no. That that there's no no argument to be made to say if we had our best athletes in America from the NBA or the NFL or NHL, if we had them playing soccer, we'd be that much better. And and there's some validity to that. Now, having said that, you know, I'm friends and I know plenty of those guys. Look, Dwayne Wade at 16 years old was the best soccer player in the country. Not many people know that, but, but Dwayne Wade at his size was a phenom, absolutely a phenom. And he gave up soccer when he was 16 for the obvious reason, right? He made a good choice and the money. (laughs) Yeah. So, and you go down the line. I'm, I'm very friendly with Steve Dash, who, who you know, starred for many years in the, mm-hmm. in the NBA. And, I'm con- and he's a fantastic soccer player. Great soccer Comes player. Comes here to New York. Yeah, great soccer player. I, I would say you take all the smaller guards in the NBA, and you have one heck of a team. Look at Odell Beckham soccer. Jr. Odell Beckham Jr. would be one of the best soccer players around. I mean... You've seen video. The guy is incredible. Listen, I'm speaking as a former goalkeeper. You don't think I'd like Odell Jr. in front of me as a center back or Dwayne Wade as a center back in front of me? Or, or and, and go back in the history of the NBA, how many players would have been great? And the same for the NFL. A cornerback, a free safety. Look, again, Croatia has 4 million people. We have 8.5 million people just in New York City. So, you know, the issue is, and everybody gets the, you know, we failed, we didn't make the World Cup, how are we going to get better? Look, I have a lot of Well, uh, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that in a second. Um, Before we get into that. To answer you, I'd love to have all those guys play soccer. Before we get into that, so the ratings for um, the World Cup in the U.S., it did a great rating. So what does that mean in terms of our consumption of soccer? that hopefully will translate to us being having a better program, no? Look, it, it, it's a very slippery slope when, when we try and analyze what went wrong and predict how to make it right. Soccer is booming in this country. There is no doubt about it. You see it, you feel it in the streets in L.A., in Chicago, in New York, in Miami, in Boston, just by watching kids who walk around wearing jerseys, whether it's Neymar, or Ronaldo, or, or the New England Revolution, or New York Red Bulls, or NYCFC, and ratings for the World Cup. Look, half the planet, half the planet, two and a half billion people tuned into this World Cup. And, and that's a lot of people watching the sport. And in this country, look, you know sports in this country, Aaron. And, and I love the NFL. I love baseball. I love hockey. Those sports, there's very little room for them to grow. The growing sport is soccer. And part of it is because the demographic of the country is changing, right? So Latino population increasing, Central America, South America, the great melting pot that's that's New York, the U.S. in general, New York in particular, it's all about soccer. And you look at you know, other people ask me, you know, is it made for TV? Is it good for TV? Look, the NFL was made for television. Television made the NFL more than anything else. The, the real start of live television and the NFL. Well, if, if TV made 
the NSL. I'll tell you what, in this day and age of technology, that's what's making soccer because you could look at an eight-year-old kid and they're playing CISA EA on their iPad and they're playing with Ronaldo and, and, and Messi and France and Croatia. The technology information stream today makes soccer worldwide accessible to every kid here in America. And so, look, the World Cup always gives it a boop, you know, a bump, but, but there's steady growth in the sport in this country. It's whether we can harness, harness it into the development of U.S. players who could one day win us a World Cup. Well, so you, you mentioned um, one thing about, you know, kids in, in the streets, you know, wearing soccer jerseys. Uh, and a lot of them are, you know, European players. The one thing about the U.S. consumer as I'm sure you very well know, is is we want to watch the best, you know, play, right? We want we want yep, to consume yep. the best. That's why the NBA, you know, one of the reasons why it it it's as big and is growing at the rate it's growing. The only sport that's growing at the rate that soccer is growing, especially internationally. But the reason why it's so big in the in the U.S. is because you have you know top level stars and you watch the best of the best play all the time locally for the MLS. We're not there yet. Right. So it's kind of a tough spot because if you want to consume soccer at the highest level, the way, you know, American consumers like to consume sports, you have to watch the overseas stuff. Sometimes you just don't feel satisfied watching the MLS because it's, it's a little bit lesser of a product. Aaron, I got to tell you, you're impressing me on this podcast. I think you have a future doing this. I'll be a regular guest. Yeah. So you hit the nail on the head because, again, I grew up in New York, uh, a baseball fan, a football fan, a hockey fan. Soccer didn't come into my life until I was 16. And what you're saying is absolutely true. What we're used to as a consumer in the U.S. sports marketplace I don't know the percentage, but about 33% of, of the NBA, they're foreign players. Why? Because they want to play in the best league in the world, and that's the NBA in the United States. Yes, there's professional basketball in Italy and Spain and all throughout Europe and Argentina and Brazil, but the very best of the international players want to play at the highest level, so they come to the NBA. And it's the same in the NHL. I think the percentages are about the same, but they're going up. So, you know, the Scandinavian countries, the Russian players, if you're good enough, where do you want to play? You don't want to stay in in Sweden or Denmark or Russia. You want to play in the NHL. So 30, 35% of players in the NHL are international players. But to your point, the best players in the world want to play at the highest level and to do that in hockey and in basketball, they're going to come here. In baseball, it's an obvious as well, although it's not as much of an international market. But the Dominican Republic, Japan has a viable league, but still, you know, the big league is here right. in Major League Baseball. And, and soccer is the inverse. You're absolutely right. We want to watch the best. Now, there's a very simple answer to it, and it's easy for me to say because I'm not writing the checks. But I absolutely believe if Major League Soccer has done a phenomenal job. Remember, I played in a league, you wouldn't remember, it was before you were born, but my league, 77,000 people at Giant Stadium, 
sellout crowds in Tampa and LA and Chicago. And we eventually went out of business because we spent the money to bring the greatest players in the world. And at that time, television wasn't there. Gate receipts were not enough. Sponsorship was not enough. But I'll give you an example. Hank Aaron, at that time that Pele played here, he, he was paid $125,000 a year to play baseball. Hank Aaron. And Pele was played, paid $5 billion to play here. Wow. So we, during that era, we spent the money to bring the greatest players in the world here. It was fantastic, but we went out of business. So fast forward 35 years, Major League Soccer, they've done a superb job. Absolutely phenomenal. They're here to stay. They're never going away. They're expanding. They had 72,000 people in Atlanta last week for a game. DC you know, they're just doing opened it a team. Right. DC just What's opened that? a team. They just DC. DC built a new stadium. But Arthur Blank, who owns you know the NFL team, he owns the team in Atlanta. Built a beautiful stadium. And last weekend, 72,000 people. So I'll get to your point, but Major League Soccer has taken slow, steady growth. This league is never going to fold. But what I would do to answer your question, I think it's time to let the teams spend whatever they want. No salary cap, open it up. If we signed players equivalent to Manchester United or Barcelona or Real Madrid, let the owners spend whatever they want. And then soccer would shoot through the moon here. But right now, they're still being fiscally conservative. They're afraid that if they take that salary cap away, that teams are going to spend too much. I disagree. I think the, I think the market is here. But to your point, the consumer in this country, you know, they go watch the Premier League because they want to watch the best of the best. Doesn't have to be that way anymore. Take the, you know, let let the horse out of the barn. Let the owners spend what they want. Bring the greatest players in the world here. And Aaron, they all want to come. Messi wants to come here. Cristiano Ronaldo wants to come here. Why? Hey, it's America. They want to live in New York or Miami or L.A. All these players want to be here. I say let the owners spend and bring them. So I was just about to ask that question about the MLS because obviously you saw guys like David Beckham, who's at the end of his career, uh, Wayne Rooney at the end of his career, Thierry Henry, end of his career. Um, they come over and they sign like their last big payday. So you, But you really believe that, you know, MLS right now, if you took away sort of that cap, I think Beckham was paid like $25 million and the next highest paid player was Landon Donovan at like a million dollars. That if you took away the cap and let the owners spend what they want, you think we can get all those guys over here? No doubt about it. There's no doubt. I was an agent, Aaron, for 20 years. And, and after I retired playing, and I do television now uh, for Madison Square Garden, we televised the Red Bull games. But when I was an agent, I was constantly in Europe uh, with my players. Every one of these players wants, wants to be here. I saw Cristiano Ronaldo over dinner three months ago in Europe. All he's asking about is uh, coming to America to play. So these wow. guys would comment. But what's happening is the younger players are recognizing that MLS is good enough for them to come. So you're a casual fan and you remember Beckham and Thierry Henry and now Wayne Rooney, but I have to tell you, Atlanta, with Arthur Blank, he bought two young players, a player named Al Marone 
nobody would know him, or a guy named Martinez, nobody would know him. These two young players, I think they're 22 and 23, these were two of the most sought-after players in Europe. Arthur Blank paid $6 million, I think, for both of them. He's already being offered $25 million to sell them to Europe. So right now, Major League Soccer is going after that young talent, not just the older talent on their way out, you know, to buy a name. Again, it's the argument to opening up the checkbook and letting them be a free capital system. I, I think then Major League Soccer would explode. So, the, you know, we mentioned, uh, obviously, the U.S. missed this year's World Cup. Uh, was a PR nightmare for American soccer. Obviously, they have the, the one kid, Christian Pulisic. I got his name right, correct? Yep. Pulisic. Pulisic. Yep. But where, who else do we have in the pipeline that we can beef up our own homegrown talent to really, you know, blow the sport out of the water kind of thing here? Look, there, there, there's, there's a problem and there's an opportunity. First of all, we, we the U.S., we got a little full of our britches, a little arrogant. We started thinking we were better than we were. And what happened in the last World Cup cycle when we failed to qualify, and by the way, Italy didn't qualify, Holland didn't qualify. So, you know, we as Americans think it's an unmitigated disaster. If you're in Italy or Holland, you're suicidal over it. You really are. For Italy not to be in the World Cup, that's a real catastrophe in Italy. For us, we got a little slap on the wrist because we got too complacent. We got too arrogant. We got too fat. We thought we were too good. And we got too old without replacing the aging players with younger talent like Pulisic. So we missed it. It happens in all sports. Uh, there's no way we're not good enough normally to qualify. We're in a very, very weak confederation. Mexico's good. Absolutely, Mexico is good and better than us. Costa Rica, maybe. Panama, never. Honduras, shouldn't be. We're in a very weak qualifying group, and we missed out. Shame on us. We should never miss out again. To answer your question, again, because... You know, general media in this country still is not really ahead of the curve in terms of soccer. We have a lot of young talent that's playing all over the world. We have other guys in Germany with Pulisic. McKinney is one, a midfield attacking option. We have players all over Europe. And here in Major League Soccer, we have, I would say, five or six or seven young players, 20 to 26 years old, who are going to be our World Cup team. Again, the, the casual fan wouldn't know their name, but here in New York, I broadcast for New York Red Bull. There's a youngster, Tyler Adams. He's 21 now. He already got called up to the U.S. national team to play. He's being sold right now to Leipzig in Germany. Tyler Adams will be a starting player in our next World Cup cycle. Uh, so I would say we have... 15 to 20 good young players who are capable of, of getting us to the World Cup and, and, and doing well. But I'm not, that's the positive, Aaron. The negative, we got 300-something million people in this country. It's shameful that we don't have more better players. And I'll tell you why. It's a pretty simple answer. 
And it's harder to fix it, but the answer is simple. Soccer in this country is still a white, suburban, middle-class sport. As long as it's limited because it costs so much that the clubs are making money and charging the kids to play, white, suburban, middle-class athletes are not getting us to the World Cup. They're not getting us to success in any professional sport. This sport has to be open in this country to every ethnicity, to kids with money or without money, not just in the suburbs, but in the cities. And once kids across this nation have no problem finding a ball and finding a field, that's when we could become a great soccer nation. So it's funny you say that because, I mean, there's definite truth to that. I, I, I can't refute that. But in terms of cost, soccer shouldn't cost nearly as much as, as football. You know, it shouldn't cost as much as hockey. It shouldn't cost as much as tennis. You know, you just need a pair of shoes and, and find the ball and, and you have a field. It's like basketball. I'm smiling. Aaron, I'm smiling because you're preaching to the choir. But again, I'm in the scene. To a casual observer like you, you're 100% right. All you need is a, a field, a patch of grass, and a soccer ball, right? Mm-hmm. No exorbitant equipment, but guess what? In this country, capitalism reigns, and you would be shocked. You soccer in this country is a multi-billion dollar business. Here on Long Island, where you and I, well, I am, and where I'm from, on Long Island, in youth soccer, just for training and development, it's a 15 to $20 million business Wow! where coaches, yeah. And, and the parent, I have a daughter with uh, three young boys who play youth soccer on Long Island. The cost to her was about $12,000 a year for those kids to be on the club team in Port Washington or Great Neck or Roslyn or Hicksville. This is a massive money grab by the people who want to make money off the kids playing soccer. And it's shameful. It's shameful. It should be the most inexpensive sport, but because so many kids want to play and love it, boys and girls, right? Equal, if not more for the girls, every parent is shelling out the money. And it's a, it's a scam. So where- There's no correlation between the coaching they're getting and development of players, but they're just ripping off the kids. So where should, where should the money come from? Like it's got to come from somewhere. Where where does it come from? In in the well, ideal again, setting, it, 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 Aaron, it doesn't have to be a lot of money. You could play. I look. I'm removed from what it costs for your boy or girl to play little league baseball, right? I, I don't know, but it's got to be de minimis. It's got to be minimal, right? I mean, you put up twenty five, fifty bucks, a hundred bucks, uh, and you give the kids uniforms, and that's it, right? So for soccer, the cost of a child to play soccer should be about $50 a season, right? Shin guards and, and a uniform. That's it. Right. The money is being piled on top for the purported coaches who are going out and training the kids. It's just a ripoff. So um, I don't know how to turn it around because, you know, anytime, anytime again, it's a multi-billion dollar business that people don't want to lose a hold of. Right. Well, Shep, this has been awesome. 
But before I let you go, and I know I've you've been exceedingly gracious with your time tonight. Um, before I let you go, you have to tell one Pele story, your best Pele story. <laughs> oh, I can't tell one. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll tell two. Uh, look, Fine. I, I'm first on a serious note. I'm honored to have played with him. I mean, I, you're talking about arguably um, one of the greatest athletes in the history of the planet, right? I would say in worldwide recognition, it was Muhammad Ali and Pele were probably the world's most recognized athletes. And and ironically, Ali was a big fan of our team because of Pele. So uh, Ali would come to most of our games and come to the locker room after. And uh, so it was a thrill to play with Pelé. But what people don't know about Pelé is he's the greatest guy in the world, and he's a prankster, like a lot of guys are. So here's my story about Pelé. Pelé, whenever we traveled, had uh, had a bodyguard with him uh, because Pelé was mobbed wherever he went. And the bodyguard was a small Cuban guy named Pedro Garay, and he you know, wore a gun, and he had handcuffs with him. And he would usher Pelé in the hotel on the team bus right up to, to the time Pelé would go on the field. So we were playing in Vancouver, staying at the hotel, took the bus to go to the game in Vancouver. And our captain was a guy named Werner Ross. We're fooling around on the bus and Pelé puts the handcuffs on Werner behind his back, right? Just he's demonstrating how the handcuffs work. Pedro. Then Pele says to Pedro, Pedro, take the key. You know, the bus pulled up to the stadium and Pele shouts to Pedro, Pedro, unlock Werner, take the handcuffs off. Pedro panics. He says, I don't have the key. Now he's getting frantic. We're going off the bus into the locker room. 45 minutes later, Werner still has his handcuffs, his hands behind his back handcuffed. Pedro went back to the hotel tries to get the key. We go out onto the field. We line up for the national anthem and Werner Roth, our captain, has his hands behind his back and he handcuffs. And finally, Pele cracks his smile that could light up the room and he holds up the key. He had the key all the time. He just uh, wanted Werner to, to panic, <laughs> so he let him go. But look, I, one more is that, and these are true stories, that I we were playing in Fort Lauderdale and Pele at the time was 36 maybe about five foot eight at, at the tallest. And across the hotel on the beach in Fort Lauderdale was a basketball court. And you know, I love basketball. And one day we're out there walking on the beach and I start shooting around. And Pele said, uh, can you teach me how to play basketball? I said, yeah. So I showed him how to drill. I showed him how to shoot. And he says to me, uh, he called me Chepito. Chepito, can I jump? I said, yeah, man, you could jump. You could jump. He takes the ball. I'm telling you, Aaron, he starts dribbling. He takes off and he's dunking. He's jamming with one hand, with two hands. The guy was, I told you, a superhuman athlete. All he did was laugh. He's jamming in my face at five foot eight, 36 years old. So, look, seriously, the last antidote, and it's a short one, is. you know, I played in the Olympics. I did all of I played professionally 18 years, and I'll never forget. For me, the final game of Pele's career, we were in Seattle. He had signed a three-year contract, and and we had not won the championship. 
the first two years. And in that third year, all of a sudden, we all rallied around. We had to bring this guy a championship in his final year. So his final game was we were playing Seattle for the championship in Portland, sold out stadium. And Pele had never really, the most humble, selfless guy in the world, but we all put our hands like we always did in a huddle in the locker room before we went out on the field. And Pele, in the middle of the huddle, he just, in the most sincere voice, he just said, guys, I never ask anybody for anything, but I I just ask, ask you for me, please, one more game. I, I get teary eyed thinking about it, but be able to go out there and win a championship in his final game, uh, you know, that's something money can't buy. And uh, I hope he's telling a story about me somewhere in Brazil. That's, that's awesome. Anyway, on that note, because I know you've been so generous, I don't want to keep you any much longer. I, I can't thank you enough uh, for, you know, um, you know, for tonight, uh, for, you know, telling the stories, for, for giving your time. It, it was really a pleasure. Aaron, I want to say any time, but I'm sure you'll take me up on it. I, I 100% it. will. I, I, <laughs> I did go radio silent during the World Cup. I believe in what you're doing. So for the love of the game, you, you keep doing it. And uh, it was a pleasure to be on with you. Thanks so much. We'll, we'll speak soon. Thanks again, really. You got it. I'm going. Bye. All right. Thanks again to uh, Shet Messing for an amazing interview. That's part one. Part two tonight being that we're about to head into the second half of the baseball season. I wanted to talk a little Yankees with friend of the program and first time guest, Mr. Uh, Josh Hoffman. Josh, what's going on, man? Hey, Aaron. Not too much. Thanks for having me, dude. Absolutely. So uh, Yankees first half. Um, what are your impressions of the um, of their uh, first half? Uh, what stood out? Who's been the biggest disappointment? Who's been the biggest surprise? What, what do we think? Yeah, sure. I think, um, you know, in general, how could you not be happy? I think 30 games over or so. So it's, uh, you know, I think it'd be nitpicking to kind of say anything other than uh, pretty amazing first half. I think as far as performance, you've got the obvious uh, judge has just continued with uh, another pretty legendary year, half a year. Glaber Torres, I would say, it's probably among the more surprising. Didn't think he'd have this power. And then, uh, you know, I, I guess on the downside, you got the, you know, uh, Sonny Gray, I would probably say is, uh, you know, the, the standout guy and, um, and Sanchez as well, but uh, we'll see how he does second half. Could you imagine had Cashman chosen Garrett Cole at last year's trade deadline, as opposed to Sonny Gray, where we would be? Yeah. It's, it's uh, yeah, I guess it's an interesting one who, who they were saying, I think with that, they had to give up you know, Frazier and a couple other guys, maybe Andujar as well. I don't remember. But if that's the case, then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. Frazier, I would have I would have parted with, but that's just my opinion. I mean, the Chapman trade that netted Glaber Torres has just been awesome for the Yankees. And I know the Cubs do that 11 times out of 10 because it won them a World Series. But that I mean, that trade came up absolute aces for the Yankees. The Gary Sanchez thing. I don't know if you've been listening to a little WFAN recently. Seems to be a lot of angry callers in regards to Gary Sanchez. I think it's crazy. He's probably, in my opinion, the best pure hitter on the team. I mean, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, I think on WFAN, you probably get a lot of angry callers. I know uh, you got a lot of buddies that call in, and uh, they're typically angry guys as well. So I'm not <laughs> all too surprised to hear that. But um, yeah, I mean, look, in general, I don't know if he's the best pure hitter on the team. I think they have a lot of good hitters, but um, yeah, I'm not going to get too crazy off a down first half. I think he's a great hitter. Um, but, you know, de- definitely a disappointing year as far as, you know, it's always tough to, I guess, question perfor- you know, ha- how hard somebody's trying. I think he's definitely trying hard, but, you know, I don't know how, how great shape he's in. And I don't know, he seems disinterested sometimes to play defense. So you know, that, that's a little bit disappointing. But at the same time, uh, you know, he, he was pretty excellent for a year and a half. So uh, I think he'll have a good second half. I'm not, I'm not all too concerned for him in the short term. His body language. You know, for those, you know, the types who are like Sal from Staten Island who get all all pissy on the radio. I mean, his body language doesn't help his cause. The one thing I do think, you know, you mentioned his defense, and I know he has a rocket of an arm. I do believe he should be playing first base ultimately. Not necessarily because he's bad behind the plate or calling a game. I just don't want to lose the bat um, where he loses his knees and isn't, you know, the hitter that he's capable of being. I mean, I, I Joe Maurer had a really, really good career, but I always felt that Joe Maurer's career could have been better had he moved to first base earlier. So I, I think, you know, I, I would love to see Gary Sanchez actually make the move to first base, which brings me to uh, our, our next topic of conversation, Greg Bird. Uh, he, he started to get a groove a little bit um, before the All-Star break, but I just don't see it. I, I've been anti uh, on this anti Greg Bird kick for a while, a while now. I know he had that one year we hit, hit like 33 home runs. He had a couple of big moments in the playoffs. I just don't see the consistency. Uh, are you a Greg Bird guy or are you not a Greg Bird guy? Yeah, I mean, I think as far as hitting, I think pure hitter, he's excellent. I, I wouldn't question his hitting. I think whenever he's been healthy, he's hit well. He has good at-bats. He's a lot of pitches. I wouldn't move Sanchez to first because I'd prefer Bird to kind of develop as a first baseman. I think he's still young. Obviously, lefty at Yankee Stadium is uh, is a big thing. So I, I disagree. I think Bird in general, my concern with him is, I uh, it seems kind of like a head case to me a little bit. I don't know if you've heard any interviews with him, but he seems pretty empty in his head. So I don't know how, how intelligent he is, but um, but you know, I think as far as hitting goes, he's He's great. And I think as far as what, what I was referencing, as far as his head, I think that translates into some of the weird stuff you've seen with him with, you know, some of these lingering injuries and, and things like that. So I think if, uh, if he gets out of his own head, I have confidence in him as a hitter. I think he's slow and you know, I don't know how good at defense he is, but as far as hitting, I think. Uh, well, he, you saw that there was one defensive lab. About oh, sorry, you just, you just cut out for a second. Just repeat what you were saying. Yeah, and no, I was saying that you were calling Sanchez earlier probably one of the best pure hitters on the team. I think a lot of people uh, feel that way about Burt as far as uh, him as a pure hitter. There was one play, it was I think against the, the pitiful Orioles where it just like exemplified, you know, my, my experience and my feelings towards Greg Bird. I think it was the game he, he hit a three-run home run. He was responsible for, I think, you know, four of the five RBIs or maybe even five RBIs. They lost six to five. But in the 10th inning, right. or was it the ninth inning of the 10th inning, there was like a routine three-hopper to first base and it goes right by him and they lose. 
Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I don't know how, yeah, I think his defense is probably not great. I think he's slow, but you know, I think he's a great hitter when healthy. I think he's a, he's a very good hitter, a patient hitter, a lefty, which is different than, uh, you know, a lot of these Yankees sluggers. So, uh, I keep him. I think he's very valuable. Um, I wouldn't trade Sanchez, but I'd consider uh, moving him uh, rather than moving him to first. I'd consider trading him for a you know Cy Young type pitcher and rolling with Romine. But uh, I think Bird is someone you got to let ride and uh, you know see how that plays out. All right, so that that brings us to uh, the trade deadline. Uh, obviously, the big news this week uh, in baseball: Manny Machado was officially moved to the Dodgers. So that takes one of, you know, the Yankees' targets off the table. Do you expect any moves? And who should be their number one target going forward, given what they have in the farm and, and what the cost is going to be? Right. Yeah, I think they'll, they're going to probably add a starting pitcher, it seems like. You know, I don't know. I think they'll probably get someone like Hap. That's probably how it will play Ugh, out, in gross. my opinion. Uh, I don't think they'll get Hamels. I don't think DeGrom is, uh, is really in the picture here. So I, I'll predict they get half. I think they'll get a starter. Um, maybe they'll get creative. I'm not sure. Are, are you, uh, you follow that guy, Corbin, Patrick Corbin in Arizona. I I'm not an expert. No. Yeah. So he's a, he's an intriguing guy. Apparently the Yankees were looking at him. He's having a big year on Arizona. So maybe, uh, maybe Cashman pulls something like that off, but you know, maybe also uh, what's the lefty on the Mets, uh, Matt. Mats and someone like that, but I don't expect any massive splash at this point as far as, uh, you know, the deadline, but I'd expect a starting pitcher. So no, so you don't expect a, a Blake Snell or DeGrom or Syndergaard? I don't think so. I don't think the Mets would ever really, I think if the Mets traded with the Yankees, they'd make them overpay. And I don't think Cashman would do that. And Snell, I guess is interesting, but I don't think Tampa will trade, you know, a guy like that. In their in his prime at you know uh, yet, but you know maybe uh, down the line that'd be something the Yankees would look at. So you mentioned an overpay. I don't think so. You mentioned an overpay. Yeah, go ahead. What would you consider an overpay for Degrom or Syndergaard? Um, I don't know. It's a good question. I, I guess I feel like the Mets are going to just want like four or five guys, and I wouldn't throw four or five guys at them. But I don't know if they, if they ask for like Frazier and Duhar. Uh, Justice Sheffield and started getting those, some of those like core um, prospects. I wouldn't touch that, but you know, if, if you could get like a cinder guard for, I don't know, Justice Sheffield, Frazier and Brandon Drury or something like that, I would do that in a second. But I, I don't know if, uh, if the Mets would do that at that point, but I think DeGrom is, I can't imagine they're going to trade him to the Yankees. It just, uh, it just wouldn't make sense. I, they're not, you know, yeah. Uh, but you, do, you think they would? You think? No, I don't. I don't think the, so. Know, their fans kind of. Uh, yeah, I don't think so because. But then again, the Mets have had terrible PR now for de- for decades. But if you're the Mets and you're not going to be willing to spend money, you're going to have to try and get multiple players back a different way. So if I were them, I wouldn't necessarily trade them. But if you're going to do it, you have to take the best package. It's kind of like the uh, the Kawhi Leonard situation in the NBA. You know, they were talking about Popovich didn't want to trade him to the Lakers, didn't want to trade him to a Western Conference team. Well, if it's for the best uh, package for your franchise, if it's from the Lakers, you have to take that deal regardless if it's the Lakers. Likewise with the Mets. If the Yankees can offer the best, you owe it to your team, your franchise, and your own fan base 
to take the best possible package. I, I think, right. you know, and personally, I know DeGrom has been insanely good, like insanely good. But the guy I would want is Syndergaard because he may cost le- a little less right now, but he's 23 years old. And I think he has the most upside out of everybody. So if I were the Yankees and I could get Syndergaard for Andahar, Clint Frazier, and maybe another pitching prospect, um, I-, I would do it like yesterday. Uh it's it's interesting. I mean, I kind of agree with you that Syndergaard, because of his age, is is the more intriguing in certain respects. But yeah, it's, that's probably a lot to give up. I mean, he's been hurt Syndergaard the last year or so. Has he come back this year, or does he still kind of have that that finger or hand injury that he had I that he's been having? I, I mean, missed mo- back most of last bit. year, most of this year. I think he's, he's been, been back. back for a little bit, but I haven't really kept up on the Mets because it's it's really hard to keep up on the Mets. Yeah, but yeah, I, I just. If they're not going to get a guy like that or a Snell or a DeGrom, it's not worth doing anything because to trade pieces for J.A. Happ doesn't make any sense because he stinks. To trade big pieces for Cole Hamels, yeah, if Cole Hamels, if it was 2009, sure. But now, I don't think it's worth it. Yeah. So ultimately, you think they stand pat? I don't think they'll get Hamels. I don't think they'll get Hamels. I agree with you there. I think he's too flashy and they'll ask for a lot. But I guess I'm not following... As precisely, but I, I, from what I understand, Hap is not going to cost that that much. You know, maybe a couple of like double A type prospects. So I agree. I don't think he's that good. I don't think he puts the Yankees over the top. But you know, it'd be a it'd be a valuable addition to the starting rotation if you could get him for a couple of mid level prospects. But definitely not going to be giving up if they are considering giving up like Frazier and Duhar for Hap. Then then I'm with you 100. percent I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't touch that. Well, Frazier is interesting, right? Because the Yankees have have this an immense outfield in terms of talent, what they have on the roster right now. Clint Frazier is ready to play every day. At a certain point, you're going to have to move him because Judge isn't going anywhere. Stanton isn't going anywhere. You like what you have out of Aaron Hicks in center field. I mean, Jacoby Ellsbury is still technically on the roster, even though he made the hopefully... Yeah, just stay away. And, and you have Brett Gardner. So you don't really have a whole lot of places to play this guy. Like, y- you should maximize the asset now while he's still relatively uh, an unknown and you can get something of value for him. No? Yeah, I think the plan, Gardner's contract is up after this year. So I think the plan is, you know, if Gardner doesn't come back, Frazier will play left field and, and be the starting left fielder next year, basically. So that's, you know, uh, so there's value there. I mean, it depends who you're getting. I wouldn't trade Frazier unless you're getting back someone of significance. I hear what you're saying, that he's kind of the odd man out right now. But I think looking forward one to two years, I think they see him, unless they sign someone like Bryce Harper, they see Frazier as kind of, uh, you know, the next left fielder, as I understand it. It'll be interesting to see what they do. Uh, I guess, you know, just to uh, put your predictions on wax here, you, you don't think any flashy um, flashy moves, big-time moves? No. I, no, I think I they had a Hap, a Hap type guy. J.A. Hap, you know, or someone similar, like a random, you know, a, an average lefty. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. And I think you, you they're going to hope to roll with Tanaka getting back healthy. 
Sabathia continuing to find the fountain of youth and Severino being the uh, a Cy Young candidate and and see how that goes. And yeah, anything they and get from Sonny Gray you, is a bonus. That could take you far. They, yeah, I mean, where do you think they finish the season? I think that, I think the same five teams that right now are are in the playoffs on the AL will be the same five. Um, you know, it's Houston, Boston, Yankees, Seattle, and Cleveland. And I think I think Yankees and Red Sox will be the last two standing in the American League this year, play each other in the uh, in the ALCS. Think the Yankees take the division from the Sox? I think that I hope so, but I, I think if I had to pick now, I'd say Boston probably will win the division. But you know, a lot of baseball. Yankees are only back, I think, four, so that could change in a week. But and I'll, two in the I'll, loss, I think. You know, two in the loss column because they had a couple. Of yeah, rainers. right, right. It's yeah, gonna, they play each other a lot, so I, you know, it's. Uh, I'll say Boston wins the division, even though uh, I hope I'm wrong. It's going to be an interesting, interesting finish um, to the season. Uh, the, this Yankee team is an exciting team. I mean, I know as my own personal history, being a Yankee fan, I was spoiled early on. Um, so a couple of the mid two thousand years were kind of you know boring. Obviously, with the exception two thousand nine, but this this team is has sort of reinvigorated my my personal baseball fandom because the guys are young. You know, Aaron Judge is just a delight. And uh, it's a fun team. It's a fun homegrown team. And uh, I, I, I think they actually will take the division. I, I, do, I do think they'll, they'll catch yeah, Boston. So. so we'll see how it goes. Anyway, I know it's late. Josh, thanks so much for uh, coming on last minute. I may need your your Rangers expertise coming soon because I haven't really been keeping up on the offseason. And apparently the draft, uh, there was a lot of chatter about their draft. So um, maybe we'll have you back on for that as well. All right, cool. Anytime, Aaron. Absolutely. Speak to you soon. All Thanks right, so much. Take Bye. care. You too. Thank you again. Major thank you to Shep Messing and uh, my friend Josh Hoffman on late notice to talk about the Yankees. It was a really special episode. Uh, I hope you guys are going to enjoy it. That's episode 28 of For the Love of the Game podcast. Take us out, hope. If not, boo, you know what? I still got you. Can I get a what, what? Do these chickens from all of my dogs who don't love, though? They get no dough. Can I get a Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.